You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Well, I have, um, I think last time I was here, I told you a little bit about my family. I do have six children, uh, 27, 26, 24, 21, 18, and 16. And since they're mostly grown, uh, I don't get to read many children's books to them like I used to. Although I do have two grandchildren now that that's about all they want me to do. Uh, But I want to begin our time this morning by reading to you and with you uh, one of my kid family favorites. And you can follow along. I'll read to you. It's the same way I probably would have read it to them. And I think you'll see it on your screen as well. It's We're Going on a Bear Hunt by Helen Rosen and, uh, or uh, Michael Rosen and Helen Oxenbury. Some of you familiar with this one? Yes. All right. Well, I'm going to have you do it. I'm going to have you do it with me. So here we go. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Oh, grass. Long, wavy grass. Can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we've what? Got to go through it. Swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh Uh-oh, a river, a deep, cold river. We can't go over it, can't go under it. Oh, no, we've what? We've got to go through it. Splash, 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 splash. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh, mud, thick, oozy mud. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we've got to go through it. Squelch, squirt, squelch, squirt, squelch, squirt. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh Uh-oh, a forest, a big dark forest. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we've got to go through it. Stumble trip, stumble trip, stumble trip. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh Uh-oh, a snowstorm, a swirling, whirling snowstorm. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we've got to go through it. Hoo-woo. 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 Yeah. Just like those ones they don't have in Jonesboro. <laughs> or Paragool. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh, a cave. A narrow, gloomy cave. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we've... Got to go through it. Tiptoe, tiptoe, tiptoe. What's that? One shiny wet nose, two big furry ears, two big goggly eyes. It's a bear. Quick, back through the cave. Tiptoe, tiptoe, tiptoe. Back through the snowstorm. Back through the forest, stumble, trip, stumble, trip, stumble, trip. Back through the mud, squelch, squirch, squelch, squirch. Back through the river, splash, 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 splash. Back through the grass, swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy. Get to our front door, open the door. 
up the stairs. Oh no, we forgot to shut the door. Back downstairs. Shut the door. Back upstairs. Into the bedroom, into the bed, under the covers. And we're not going on a bear hunt again. I want you to hear the psalmist say almost the same thing in Psalm chapter 42. It's a very familiar psalm. In fact, it's one of the first psalms I think I probably ever knew, like like knew by heart. And it's not because I read it, it's because I had sung it. And it was a familiar chorus back when I came to know Christ and we sang it like in church and in, 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 in groups that I was in in college uh, with this college fellowship that I was in. And so, he, and I'm not a, I'm not musical, but here's how I remember learning the beginning of Psalm 42. And some of you are going to remember this. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. You, O Lord, are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. Remember that? Some of you remember that? Now I remember hearing that, singing that. I remember sitting in a a small setting on a college campus with other college students. I remember like hearing that, singing that over and over. And I remember imagining myself wanting to be like the psalmist. I remember thinking, I want to be just that intimate with God. I, I was imagining this scene with this deer down by this pond or this water brook, just like, just like lapping up water and being like just this beautiful, like serene, spiritual, intimate, connected moment. And that's what I thought I was singing about in Psalm 42. The problem is, I didn't read or know the rest of the psalm. And there's a context of this that I want to actually read that passage, talk about it, but then read a few more, a few more verses deeper into the psalm. Okay, so here let's start in Psalm chapter 42, starting in verse 1. It says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God. That word thirst there, it's talking about a slow, agonizing drought. Like, just like a, it's not like I'm just kind of thirsty. It's like I haven't drank water in a long time. It's like this person who's just been like in the desert for years and they're just crawling out of the desert and it's just been this long, dry, dry as a bone season. He says, my soul thirsts. It's, an, it's a slow agony. My soul thirsts for God, he says, for the living God. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? Now, here's where it changes. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? So people are watching me. People are seeing me. They see how parched I am. They see the agony that I am in, and they're saying, Where's your God? I don't see it. He says, these things I remember. He says, and I pour out my soul within me. This is a man or a woman who is hurting. He says, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. Now, stop there for a second. What's implied? He said, I used to what? I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. Look, I used to be there. There was a time when it felt better than this. There was a time when I was not so thirsty. There was a time when I was not so dry. There was a time when it didn't hurt this bad. There was a time when life wasn't this hard. 
There might have been a time when people looked at me and said, yeah, I see who your God is. There used to be a time. But that's not today. For this psalmist. He says, I used to go along and lead them in the procession to the house of God. I was like first in line on Sunday morning. He said, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving. He said, a multitude keeping festival. Verse 5, he says, why are you in despair, O my soul? In the Hebrew there, it means to be cast down and humbled. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? That's a groaning. He says, hope in God. For I shall again praise him. Again, what's implied? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He's hoping that there'll be a day again when it will feel like it used to feel. But that's not today. But then go on. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He says, for the help of what? See it there. His presence. He says, I won't praise him again for the help of his deliverance. I won't praise him again because somehow my circumstances are going to change. I won't praise him again because somehow this won't be as hard. I won't praise him again because somehow this won't feel the way it feels. He says, I will praise him again for the help of what? His, say it, presence. Can't go over it. Can't go around it. Can't go under it. Sometimes you will go through it. He says, oh my God, he says, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember thee from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and Mount Mazar. Verse 7, he says, deep calls to deep at the sound of thy waterfalls. All thy breakers and thy waves have rolled over me. I lived in Anchorage, Alaska for six years. In fact, I was just there a week and a half ago and I saw it. The tide is so big in Anchorage. You know, if you've ever been to the, any of the coast, you know, there's a high tide and a low tide. And you know, the tide is either slowly coming in, or sl- the tide is slowly going out. Where in Anchorage, they have what's called a bore tide. The tide comes in so fast and so big in Anchorage that you can surf the tide like you're surfing a wave in Hawaii. And people do it. They put on wetsuits and get on a surfboard and they'll ride the tide for a mile like they're riding a wave. You can be standing on what looks like a beach one minute and five minutes later be 10 feet underwater. That's how fast the tide comes in. In fact, it happens every year. Somebody dies. Somebody dies because they go down there messing around in the muck, the beach, the, the glacial silt. They get sucked down. All of a sudden, the vacuum of the, of, the, of the damp, wet sand. All of a sudden, they thought they could get out. There's a vacuum that's created. Their legs get stuck. They get stuck up to their knees. They cannot move. The tide comes in and they drown. Happens every year. The psalmist is talking about a moment. He's saying, look, what's happening is this bore tide has swept over me. And I'm looking up at 10 feet of water. I'm drowning. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know if I like where I'm at right now. I, I, I wanted to go over it around, it, around it, but I'm going through it. But it says here that in that place, in that place of overwhelmed, in that place of desperate spiritual thirst, in that place where others may even look at the circumstances of my life and wonder where the blessing of God is. He says, but in that place, in that dark place, maybe that hungry place, maybe that desperate place, maybe that thirsty place, maybe that I don't know how I got here place. Maybe I can't even hardly remember when it wasn't like this place. He says, somehow in that overwhelmed place, deep calls to deep. Now, all kind of commentators have all kind of thoughts about what they think this means. But I think it's just self-evident. 
that in this deep, dark, often desperate, agonizing place, sometimes there's a quiet place where God speaks deep things to people in deep places. Can't go over it, can't go around it, can't go under it. Sometimes you will go through it. Now you can turn to the left in your Bible to another very familiar psalm, but you're going to see the same thing. Turn to Psalm 23. Again, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's going to start the same way as Psalm 42. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, he, he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Like, yes, just like the beginning of Psalm 42. This is wonderful. I'm a sheep like in this beautiful valley that's lush and green, and my shepherd has led me there. And by the way, go back and say it again. In the Psalm 23, who's the shepherd? Say it. Who's the shepherd in Psalm 23? The Lord is. And who's the sheep? We are. And we love it when we're in this what? Green pasture. Besides what? Quiet waters. He's restoring my soul. He's guiding me in the, in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Look at verse 4 though. Even though I walk. Now who's leading again? Who's the shepherd? The Lord. Who's the sheep we are? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Whoa. Now, how'd I get there? Now, sometimes it may have been I just wandered off and he had to come get me, but there's a possibility that this shepherd may have led me there. Because sometimes you can go over it, sometimes you can go around it, sometimes you can go under it, but there's a whole lot of times you're going to have to go through it where deep will call to deep. He says, even though I walk through, listen, walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou, what, deliver me from the valley of the shadow of death? No, for thou art, what, with me. Psalm 42, the hope of the help of what, his, say it, presence. He says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Hold, stop right there a second. Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my who? Enemies. Now, who prepared the table? The Lord. Who who invited the guests? The Lord. Now, that's a pretty big deal to be having a meal with your enemies. Now, back in that day, you did not eat with an enemy. In fact, to eat a meal with another person was a sign of great trust and friendship. Because they didn't sit down and eat the way we eat. You know, they sit, they, we don't really like to sit down at a table. They reclined at a table. The table was about a foot off the ground, if not on the ground. And so here's how they ate. They got down on an elbow like this, and they all reclined together, and you reached into the food with your left hand reclining on your right. That's why even when you hear stories and you read about the Last Supper with Jesus with his disciples, he's talking about John being on the breast of Jesus. That meant John was right here. And and Jesus was talking to John, and John was looking back at Jesus, and Jesus was looking across at Peter. It was all happening, but you can figure out where people were in the Last Supper around that table based on how the story's told of these men on an elbow. Now, I wouldn't do this if I didn't trust you, because if you come after me, I'm like helpless. And my best hand is what I'm leaning on. I'm on an elbow laying down with who? People that want to harm me and hurt me. Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Yet in that place, he says, thou, 
in that context, just like in the valley of the shadow of death, thou hast anointed my head with what? Oil. He says, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and kindness shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Sometimes you go over it. Sometimes you can go under it. Sometimes you will go around it. But most of the time, you will go what? Through it. Yet when the waves roll over us, what do we pray? Lord, help me to avoid this. Lord, help me to go around this. Lord, help me to go under this. Lord, help me to go over this. Lord, help me to get out of this. Do anything, Lord. Just don't make me go through it. When we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death, what do we pray? Lord, get me out of this valley. Lord, get me away from this table. Get me out of the company of these enemies. And we often assume or presume that it would be to God's greater glory for him to deliver us from those circumstances. To take us around it, over it, or under it. Most of the Bible doesn't read this way. You're not going to see it on your screen, but I'm just going to read it to you because I want you to feel what I say, not just read it. But I'm going to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and I want, I want to read this. I just want you to listen. Don't look it up. Just listen to this. The writer says, What more shall we say? For time shall fail me if I tell of you of Gideon and Brock and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith... Listen, they conquered kingdoms. They performed acts of righteousness. They obtained promises. They shut the mouths of lions. Man, I love this. They quenched the power of fire. <coughs> Excuse me. They, 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 they escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong. They became mighty in war. Put foreign armies to flight. Sign me up for that. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And others were, oh, here, oh gosh, here we go again now. Watch this. And others went through it. They were tortured, not accepting their release, nor that they may obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, here we go, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men and women of whom this world was not worthy, the writer says. Wandering in deserts, deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. It says, and all these, having gained approval through their faith. Did not receive what was promised. So even the promise that they would have for what they went through, it says they haven't even received it yet. Verse 40 says, because God provided something better for us. So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. In other words, I'll paraphrase paraphrase that. These men and women that went through this haven't received their good yet. Because they're going to receive theirs when we receive ours. So we can receive it all together. That's incredible. Those of us who are going through it. And then if we do go through it, we do everything we can not to feel the impact of what we're going through when we're going through it. So when the waves roll over us, what do we do? We check out, we practice denial, we minimize what's happening, we rationalize or justify it we think somehow that we need to protect god's reputation that if my life is hard then god must not be good so when someone asks me how i'm doing i have to tell them i'm doing great because i have to be doing great for god to be doing great which is not biblical at all the hebrew writers knew that god was good even though life was hard and they spoke of it and it was truthful 
but we check out, we medicate, we try to go away, we try not to let it get to us. We'll use sex, drugs, alcohol, religion, recreation, busyness, distraction. We'll often even spiritualize what's happening. And we use the scriptures out of context somehow to try to make sense of what's just hard. And we'll say things like this. Now, I've heard this. God won't give you more than you can handle. Have you heard that before? Well, it's not true. Because he will. God will give you more than you can handle. He will. And I want you to consider that it could be his mercy that has led you to a place in your life that is more than you can handle. That he has led you to a place in your life where life does not work for you. Where there's a chance for deep to call to deep. Can't go over it, can't go around it, can't go under it. You most likely will be going through it. Genesis chapter 3, it's a great story right after Genesis chapter 2. You know, Genesis 1 and 2, the man and woman have everything they've ever wanted. Like life's really working for them. It all works. Like nothing doesn't work. And the garden is set up to where there's a God and there's a human, human, two humans. And God's God and they don't have to be. They're, they're human. And in their humanness, they need him. So being human and in need is not what's wrong with them. It's how they're made. And as long as they know that they need him, they're going to get what they need from him. We experience the love of God when God meets needs he put us in, uh, that he put in us. And they needed him. And the lie of the serpent was you don't need God. Like you can be like him. And so there's this tree in the garden where all of life works, and God says, you just can't eat from that one tree. And where was the tree? The tree was in the middle of the garden. Now, that's significant. That just means that while life is working for this man and this woman, they can't go anywhere without being reminded that they're not God. There is a God in the garden, and it's not them. There's an authority, and it's not them. As long as they remember that they're human, and there's a God, and it's not them, and if they need this God, they get what they need. If they can remember that, life will work. But they don't believe it. They believe the lie of the serpent, and they decide that they can live apart from God and do it their way. So then you pick up in Genesis chapter 3, and I'll paraphrase what happens there, where God addresses the serpent after the fall. <clears throat> and he turns to the serpent and says, Curse you more than all the creatures, all living things. You'll crawl on your belly because of this. And then he says to the, the serpent, he says, he says, Now there's going to be a war that's just started between you, serpent, the devil, and between this woman who you deceived, and between your seed and between her seed. We know from the New Testament that that her seed is talking about Jesus, that Jesus Christ is called the specific seed of the woman. So right here when all hell is breaking loose, and it looks like that God doesn't know what's happening, and Satan has won, and and, and humanity has fallen, God's already stepped in and said, hold on, hold on, I'm still in control here, and you need to know there's going to be a war, and there's a war that started between you, serpent, and between this woman, and all of hers, humanity that come from her, and the seed of her, which is Jesus. And in that war, God says to the serpent that you will bruise the seed of the woman on the heel, but he will crush your head. In other words, in that war that you think you've got things going on, you will for three days think you have defeated him in a battle. But in the ultimate war, he will defeat you forever, which is the crushing head wound, which is the fatal wound. So I want you to know that even at the very beginning of all hell breaking loose, God is promising heaven. At the beginning of all falling apart, it looks like Genesis 3.15 is predicting John 3.16. That even when all of humanity says, I don't need you, God is already providing a way back for that man and that woman. Now here's why that's important. It's important because what comes right after that 
is set context by, by that merciful act that Jesus has already, or God is already telling us about Jesus. So when God then addresses the man and the woman, he's not punishing them like a pissed off parent. He's punishing them like a parent. It's not punishment. He, he, he's providing mercy and grace. So here's what happens. He says, I'm gonna, and I'm going to do this American style and in American order, but I'm going to paraphrase about six verses. He says this. He says, now, man and woman, I'm going to talk to you. And he doesn't curse them like he curses the serpent. But he tells them this. He says, he says you're going to get a job. <laughs> and I, and I, don't care, I don't care how good that job might feel some days. You need to know something. At the end of the day, it's a J-O-B. And it's going to be thorns and thistles, and it's going to be work. And that's going to humble you a little bit. You thought you didn't need me. You're going to find out what life is like without me. And he says, you think you got that job thing down? Maybe. Okay, now you know what's going to happen. You're going to think that the answer is like to get married and find a man or woman that you're going to find some life with. And you're going to say, that's the answer. Like this hole in my chest, this thing that I want, this life that I want, it's going to be found in him or her. And you're going to get married. And then you know what's going to happen? Whoo, man. You thought work was hard. (laughs) You You don't know what you're doing. And then you're looking at him or her saying, you don't know what you're doing because you don't. And you're looking in the mirror going, no, I don't know what I'm doing. This is hard. I've never done anything harder. And then if you kind of get through that a little bit, then you think, well, hey, let's have kids. <laughs> and, and even with that, I, I can tell you, you know, not all can have kids. Many do. And I got a bunch of them. Thank God I do. I didn't, we didn't think for years we could have any. That's what we were told. We ended up having a bunch. But, you know... <laughs> There's been very little in my life that has brought me greater joy. There's been very little in my life that I've not laid in bed and thought, I can't believe I almost missed this. But there's also been nothing I've done that's been harder, that has broken me, broken my heart, caused me the greatest pain, caused me to just not sleep. I mean, just there's nothing. There's nothing I've done harder than be a dad. Painful. God, painful. And then, and then if you think you got the job down, the marriage down, and maybe you, you survived those kids, you know what? There's a body that you're living in. Yeah. And you know that body was meant to live forever. It wasn't meant to do what it's going to do. But you know what's going to happen? You know, you thought you'd never look like your dad. Yeah, you're looking <laughs> like him. Like you thought you'd always be able to run like that, jump like that. You know, listen, I I'm looking at you. I know. Listen, <laughs> if I tried to sprint from here to the back, I'd have two ripped hamstrings before I got to the door. <laughs> Don't you know that? Like, my mind tells me I can still do it, but my body's going to say, no, 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 no. Because it doesn't, and it won't. And I get up, and I'm, you know, I get up in the morning, I go, man, it's just not working like it used to. And, and you know, so you got through the marriage and the job and the kids. This and the great equalizer is going to be your health. And if you go to a prayer meeting, what's 95%, 98% of what we pray about at a prayer meeting? is somebody's illness, because daggone it, there's nothing, we're, it's, we got great medicine, but at the end of the day, we have no control of what's going to happen. We're going to die in this life. And so this man, this woman that thought they could live apart from God, you know, they, they get out there and start living it, and they start living it, and, and it's just a job and a marriage and the kids, and, that, and now I'm getting old, and, and, then, and then all of a sudden I'm down here, and I'm either going to shake my fist at God about what life is like down here, or I'm going to raise my hands and surrender and say, oh, my God, this isn't life. If you're not, a God, if you're not God, I don't know where I'm going. If you can't give me some life, I don't know where I'm going to find it. In anything, anything that brings a man or woman to this place in their life to cry out to a God that says, I need you again, 
That's the mercy of God. You see, can't go over it, can't go around it, can't go under it. You just may be destined to go through it. Where deep can call to deep. And that will be God's mercy in your life to find him again. The very God that was promising the Messiah in Genesis 3.15 was creating a context in the verses after to actually draw us back to receive the promise of what he gave us. That life won't work. In many ways, in this life, pros fall, it was not meant to. But will they? Well, will again someday. This is going to sound familiar to some of you. Some of us who have hit walls that kind of where we realized life didn't work. And this is kind of what it sounded like to us. This is what it kind of sounded like to me 13 years ago. That I had to admit that I was powerless over filling the blank. And that my life had become unmanageable. That I came to believe that a power greater than me, Jesus Christ, a power greater than me could restore me to sanity. And I would make a decision. I would make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of that God. That's called surrender. That's deep calling to deep. Can't go over it, can't go around it, can't go under it. You're going to probably have to go through some of it. See, religion is an attempt to make life work or to remove me from the admission that it will not. Christianity, on the other hand, is the admission that life will never work this side of heaven. And grieving this truth is what leads me to the only relationship that offers me the life that I was made for. George Barna, in his book, Maximum Faith, he did some research on what what consistent things he found in the lives of believers who experienced exponential spiritual growth. Something we probably all want. That's why we're here on a Sunday morning. Exponential spiritual growth. Now, I don't recommend these, but here's the consistent things he found among believers in churches in North America when they grew. Now, here they are. First one is prison. You go to prison, you're going to grow. Divorce. You go through the heart-wrenching impact of a broken relationship and marriage, you're going to grow, or you have the potential to. A health crisis, I just referred to that, you're going to grow. He says bankruptcy, financial hardship, you're going to grow. Finally, he says the crisis of a child, you'll grow. Three times the Apostle Paul prayed. He said, God, help me go over it, under it, around it, but I don't want to go through it. Three times he prayed that, and God said, "Mm mm-mm. Paul, you're going through it. And then Paul wrote this. He said that he he talked about he prayed that he would know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. God said to Paul, it's my mercy in your life that you will go through it, that you'll know me. Jonah wanted to go around it, under it, or over it. God had other plans for Jonah. Listen, even Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, in the garden wanted to go under it, around it, or over it. This is staggering. Are we okay on time, Jared? Okay. Staggering. The God-man, Jesus, who, who before time outside of time, within the counsel of the Godhead, with his Father decreeing it, and him submitting to it to go do it, who knew he was going to come and do what he did. His hour had finally come. Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15, who was going to make the way for us to come back 
That Jesus who throughout his three years of earthly ministry, whenever anyone wanted him to go do something, he would say, no, 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 no. Now's not my hour. This isn't why I'm here. It's not my time. He's finally in his hour. He's finally at the time when all of human history is to be consummated and to be brought back to the creator. He's about to go do what would create the way back. It's the moment. It's his time. And he's in the garden. And what's he say? He says, Father, is there another way we can do this? So afraid, he's sweating drops of blood. We know he's scared. The God-man is terrified of what he's getting ready to have to do. He's also lonely because it's one thing to be afraid and another thing to be alone. We know he's lonely because he wanted his best friends to be with him in his hour. He said, would you stay up with me and be with me in this moment? And then what happened? They fell asleep. So now he's hurt. And he says, you couldn't stay awake with me. And then one of the gospels says that, a, that, a, that an angel appears to Jesus in that moment. He's on his knees sweating drops of blood. His, uh, his buddies are asleep. He's afraid. He's hurt. He's lonely. And an angel appears, I think, a reminder of the presence of his father for the help of his what? Presence. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art what? With me. I think that was a reminder that I'm not alone in this. It was in that moment that the God-man stood up. And said, not my will, but thine be done. That he wanted something more than what he was afraid of. That's called passion and courage. Hebrews said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame. He wanted something more than what he was afraid of. But it doesn't mean he wasn't afraid, hurt, or lonely. Man, was he surprised by that moment? No, he wasn't. But man, he felt it. You know, when the Bible says, fear not... Look, we often view fear as the absence of faith. I just now told you that the God-man was afraid. Okay, most of the time the scripture says this. Fear not because I'm with you. Fear not because I'm your shield. Fear not because I have chosen you. Fear not because I've redeemed you. Fear not because I've called you. Fear not because I will uphold you. Fear not because I will strengthen you. Fear not because sometimes I will deliver you, but most of the time you're going to go through it and I'm going to stay with you in it. When my children have all been afraid at night, there have been a boogeyman in the closet or under the bed. Those kids did not need me to walk in the room and turn on a light and sweep under the bed and open up a closet and prove there was no boogeyman. All those kids needed was for me to walk into that dark room, lay on that bed, put them in my shoulder, put their head right here on my chest, and within a minute, their heart rate would slow, and they were what? Sleeping. And their fear was not their absence of faith. Their fear was a human cry out to a father they believed would come give them refuge and protection and help. And we take passages out of context, like perfect love casts out fear. That's 1 John chapter 4. Listen, that's talking about our fear of eternal judgment. And if you know you know Christ, you don't have to fear that day. And the more you know he's yours and you're his, the less you'll be afraid about that day. And the growth of that perfect love, his love for you knowing you're his, is why you don't have to be afraid about your judgment. We take verses like, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of courage. Well, the word in the Greek there is not fear, it's cowardice. God has not made us cowards, but he's made us courageous. Being courageous is not the absence of fear. I just said that. Being courageous is willing to do something you're afraid of because something matters more than what you're afraid of. We take verses like this, be anxious for nothing. Well, that word anxiety, there's not fear either. Anxiety is about control and power. Anxiety is about me being so afraid of something, I think I have to prepare myself for it. And so I lay there and run at all the possible scenarios of all the bad things I think might happen. So when they happen, I can be prepared to know what to do when they happen. There's no trust in that. There's no faith in that. The faith is in my preparedness. So read the whole verse. Be anxious. Don't like prepare yourself. You don't know. You can't control it. The waves are too big. You're in it and under it and through it. 
But in everything, in all of that, he says, by prayer, cry out to me, child in bed who's scared of the boogeyman. I don't care whether the boogeyman's real or not. What's real is your fear and you need me. By prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then, and then the peace of God, now you're that child with your father. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let the Bible speak for itself. In the work I do with Tin Man that God has called me to, I, I, get, I get the privilege of washing the feet of leaders in, in remote parts of the world and, and, and even here in North America, some that are in this room. Not too many summers ago, I, I was in a part of the world that I, I won't tell you, can't tell you where I was. But I asked the question of these pastors that I was with. I said, how many of you have been in prison for your faith? And every single hand went up. I want you to watch a very short video. We got a couple minutes. Jared said, I'm good. It's about a four-minute video. I want you to watch... Because I turned on a video camera with their permission, and I let a few of them talk about what their experience has been. And here's what I want you to watch. Here's why I'm showing you this. And you're going to see, at one point during the video, you're going to see my son, one of my boys, his head pops into pictures. You can see this little blonde head in the middle, middle of these men. I, I was about to say where they're I can't tell you where they're from. But, but, but I want to talk to you about what my son said after this happened. But here's what I want you to look for. I want you to hear what they're saying with your ears, but I want you to look at their countenance with your eyes and through the eyes of your heart. And I want you to see if they're, what their faces are saying and, and how it matches up or doesn't match up with what you hear their voices saying about their experience relative to what I'm talking about right now. And then I'm going to make a comment and then we're going to land the plane. I have been in prison twice for professing my faith in Christ. My wife and I were held the first time for about 40 days at an army base and the officials tried to force us to denounce our faith in Christ. I was arrested again a second time for the same reason and taken to a prison, this time, for about three years. I was in a small jail cell I shared with about 60 other men, crowded into the cell with each of us having about an arm's length wide, just a space to sleep in. It's made out of tin roofing with water leaks. I would take off my clothes to my underwear because it was so very hot. There were two other believers from my village in the prison cell with me and the other men. We were fed sticky rice and salt with no vegetables or meat. When my family would visit, they could bring food, but they could not visit often because it was expensive to travel outside the city to the prison. No less than three people per week died in the prison while I was there due to the conditions in the prison. People had infections, rashes, physical problems. I was 55 years old when I first went to prison and had a heart condition. But because I was in prison for religious purposes, I was not allowed to be treated in the hospital for my heart condition. Those in the prison for other offenses could be treated in the hospital. The elders and leaders in the churches are the ones that are taken to prison. No Christian leader has been killed in prison that I know of. But there have been those I know who've been martyred outside of prison or taken away and never seen again, sometimes whole families. Three times I've been arrested, the first time because the government said that there will be no Christianity in my area, and again the second time for the same reason. I was also arrested a third time. We were not allowed to eat any meals, and we were forced to carry very long, heavy loads of bamboo for the policemen to sell. 
Since I'm small and the bamboo is very long, I had to carry it over my head so it does not drag the ground. The governor saw this and asked, why did I carry the bamboo like this? I said, because we believe in Christ. I'm forced to do these things. I had to carry 200 loads of bamboo in one day. We were also forced to cut wood for cooking. If we did not stop believing in Christ, then we were not given rice like the others. So we didn't have any rice. We do not have the rights to do anything while we're in prison. We can't drink clean water. We can only eat a little bit and we cannot take a shower. When they give us food, what little we are given, we are made to crawl on the floor to get it while they kick the food across the floor. When they stop kicking the food across the floor and we are allowed to eat it, it can't be eaten because it's too dirty to eat. Before the government released us, they told us not to tell anyone what was done to us in prison and not to tell anyone that we were in prison because we believed in Jesus Christ. They said, just tell them you did something else that led to your arrest, not that you believed in Christ. If we do this, we're told we will be released. As a believer and as ministers who work together, sometimes four or five of us are arrested and put in jail, and sometimes only one of us is arrested. We did not have any help from the state church. They cut us off and did not care for our families or for us having much hardship because we were in prison. We still serve the Lord, believe and trust in Him, and wait for someone to come and see how we suffer and are persecuted and have troubles. We just wait for someone to see and care and to encourage us spiritually. Did you see that? Did you see what I wanted you to see? I'm going to tell you. Here's what my son said. He said, Daddy... He said, I see a Jesus in these men that I've never seen. As if somehow these men had something or were experiencing something that seemed rich and full when everything about their lives says they have no reason to be. He said, Daddy, I want more of what I see in these men. So this is kind of not a downer message like it might sound. Kind of like, gosh, life's just hard. It's not that. It's, it's that you can't go around it, you can't go over it, you can't go under it. Sometimes you're going to go through it, but when you're going through it, you will have the help of his presence where deep will call to what? Deep. And the promise is this. You won't go through it alone or you don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to. Thank God. 